Hello, I'm Frank Turner. Welcome to Tales from No Man's Land, a podcast that accompanies my album, No Man's Land. It's about 13 women from history who you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. Their stories are fascinating, moving, funny, and most importantly, worth celebrating and sharing. Welcome back to Tales from No Man's Land. If you are coming back, thank you so much for doing so. And if this is the first episode that you're listening to, you can take the time to go back and listen to the episodes and the women whose stories I've told so far. The series is nearly drawing to a close, which is a great sadness. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed making it. This penultimate episode is about a woman known as the Giggling Granny. Uh, Her real name was Nanny Doss, and it's a foray into the world of true crime. She's not as innocent as her name suggests. In fact, she admitted to killing four of her five husbands, some of whom she found in the Lonely Hearts columns of magazines. She's also suspected to have killed her mother, some of her sisters, her mother-in-law, and a grandson. She was known as the Giggling Granny in the press because she showed no remorse at the trial for her crimes, or the ones she admitted, uh, and simply commented that she hadn't yet met her perfect mate. It's a difficult topic to discuss with appropriate sensitivity, and I've been fortunate enough to be joined for this episode by the true crime writer and podcast host, Tori Telfer. Today I am in my favourite London basement for recording podcasts in, but on the telephone all the way from New York City, I have Tori Telfer on the line. Hi, Tori. Hi, Frank. How's your day today? It's going well. Just getting started over here. Yeah, well, we're in the middle of our afternoon over here, but um, uh, I hope you've had some coffee and are raring to do some podcasting talking about (laughs) Nanny Doss. Yes, I have had my coffee and I am ready. Excellent. Good stuff. Well, just before we get started, could you introduce yourself and uh, tell us who you are and what you do and what brings you to this podcast today? Yes, absolutely. So my name is Tori. I'm a true crime writer and podcaster. And my first book was called Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History. And I have a chapter all about our girl Nanny Doss in it. So uh, it's a book about female serial killers across the globe and throughout time. Not an often covered uh, topic. Yeah, you'd be surprised how rarely it's written about because it's very fascinating, I think. And apparently you do too. Yeah, well, so this is the thing. Um, I have I've was putting together this album, No Man's Land, with a series of kind of stories about historical women. And this was one of the last songs that I wrote for the record. And part of my motivation for it was that I was worried that I was in danger of making a record that was one-dimensional in a different way than the obvious one, mm. which is that the whole album was mm-hmm. all about like, aren't all these people amazing? Aren't they angels? Um, and that didn't seem like a uh, an intelligent or sensitive uh, or holistic approach to the subject, should we say. So I started yeah. thinking about um, women who are not angels, <laughs> um, should we say. <laughs> and uh, I went down what I think you'll understand what I'm talking about, a Wikipedia hole. Oh, yes. <laughs> reading about female serial killers and was surprised to learn that there are many. Yeah, there are, there are a lot more than people realize. Over here we have Eileen Murnos, who is Florida in the in the 90s and a lot of people sort of think she was the only female serial killer because she's the most famous one yeah. but yeah I've had the same experience you've had of just being like oh man there are hundreds of these women yeah and it, and that raises a lot of kind of interesting kind of political and historical questions which we'll get to mm-hmm. but let's begin by talking <laughs> about Nanny Doss who was born I think I'm right in saying in Alabama in 1905 1906 in Alabama. 1906 in Alabama. So she's in the deep south and Mm -hmm. she's white, but she's kind of, Mm -hmm. am I right in saying she's kind of rural poor, should we say? 
Yes, absolutely. I'm kind of a farm girl, had to work the farm from an early age. I don't imagine her childhood was that easy. Yeah. So, and her father does not come out of the records as being a particularly pleasant character. I think I'm right saying he didn't believe in education, not just for women. He just didn't believe in education full stop and had his kids working on the farm from when they were about seven years old. Yeah. He is a very key figure in Nanny's life because um, I would say the main thing about him is that he was very anti boys. So he didn't want Nanny seeing any boys, didn't want her dating around. He actually picked out her first husband for her right. uh, at the you know, ripe young age of 15. So, is, I, I mean, mean... It's a different time, but that's that's still, that's kind of a shocking right. uh, number to be faced with. And I think, you know, he didn't uh, he didn't let her wear makeup um, and was sort of mm-hmm. constantly fretting about whether or not she was going to be molested on her way to and from school, <laughs> um, which I think she actually was at some point. Um, you know, I, yeah, there are conflicting reports. I don't know. Sometimes I think um, some of these women, it's tempting to think that bad things happened to them to explain the bad things they did later. Sure. I'm not 100% sure that that happened. There's also rumors that he molested her. Right, okay. The research I've uncovered, she didn't talk about that. You know, she never yeah. went on record saying, yes, my dad did this sure. or whatever. But we know she didn't like him. And when he left her mom, that made her furious. So. She certainly didn't have much affection for him. Sure. And I mean, whether it's correct or not, there's certainly the stereotype, the kind of Freudian stereotype of the the psychopath Mm -hmm. being somebody who was damaged Mm -hmm. in their childhood in some way. There was an incident where she hit her head as a child. Yes, that's the other big thing you have to know about Nanny. Yeah, uh, I believe she was seven and she got in a train accident. The train kind of sharply stopped and she flew forward and hit her forehead and... As you may know, frontal lobe injuries are like the serial killer's calling card. You know, I think about 25% of serial killers have had a childhood head injury because that's where we have our, um, you know, our impulse control. The frontal lobe keeps you and I from flying into rages all the time, hopefully. I didn't know this, actually. So this is fascinating. Oh, a lot of the big male serial killers, John Wayne Gacy, had a, you know, was hit by a swing when he was a kid. Right. Um, A lot of them have it. So it's definitely not something to ignore about Nanny. And for the rest of her life, if you've seen photos of her, you've probably seen her cute little cat eye glasses. She complained of headaches for the rest of her life. And you know, probably the glasses were, you know, had something to do with that to help with her vision and her head. So it definitely affected her. I mean, I don't think in 1906 or in the early 1900s, anyone was putting these things together. Yeah. But well, now looking back. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, it's not even necessarily that it was the early 20th century. It's just that it's quite difficult to sort of see any child who hits the head and say, they're going to become a serial killer. It, you know, you can't, right. you can't extrapolate in that direction. But so continuing no, no. with the story. So she marries uh, Charlie, I think his name is, is her first husband mm-hmm. when she's, uh, they date for four months and he he's like working at a factory with her. Yeah, yeah. And her dad kind of, like I said before, picks him out. Uh, his name is Charlie Braggs. And they get married very young. And he likes her. He thinks she's a great girl, a cute girl, church-going girl. He kind of doesn't have anything bad to say about her at first. But then as the marriage goes on, she starts displaying some odd behaviors that he's not okay with. Like, if she gets mad at him, she will run away for weeks even, sometimes with another man. She's not around. This is transgressive behavior in society at that period of history. Right. Very transgressive, very indicative of Nanny's man obsession, which is developing. Yeah. They have five children, um, but three of them die young, which, again, not that unusual given the time. But 
What I think is telling is Charlie had some suspicions about the infants who died. Right. Um, he didn't really know how to articulate it. He just said they turned black so quick. So, okay. you know, I don't know if that's like they turned blue because they didn't have air or whatever. Um, but he seemed to think that Nanny was had done something a little bit shady. Right. And, and he, that's it, all we know. We don't. Yeah, there's a moment in time when he says that he's scared of her. I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, I think he's starting to see, wow, this cute little church-going girl I married is turning into this unpredictable woman who doesn't seem all that maternal. I don't really trust her around our children. Yeah. And she's also down to run away with other men. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting contrast with, uh, you touched on this briefly, but one of the things that I find most fascinating in a very morbid way is that she was completely sort of immersed in romance novels, Lonely Hearts columns, and she had this very kind of, almost I want to say like disnified vision of what romance should consist of. Or at least that's what she would later tell the police to explain. We right. can get to that. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, she, she and Charlie uh, divorce, am I right in saying? I don't, he doesn't actually die at this point. No, Charlie survives her. He files for divorce after about eight years of marriage. He keeps one of their daughters and sends the other to live with her parents. So Nanny doesn't get the children, which again seems unusual. You know, the cliche is that the kids go with the mom. So I think that's another small telling detail about what Nanny was like as a mother. Sure. Um, And then through the rest of her life then, she remarries a number of times and has more children and indeed a a grandchild, I think I'm right in saying, who uh, Mm -hmm. her oldest daughter was called Melvina and uh, she had a child who died shortly after birth, I think is right. And um, she claimed that she'd seen in her sort of like painkiller haze that she may or may not have seen Nanny buy the baby with a hat pin. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I don't know about this. Oh, right. Yeah, no. So I couldn't find a dedicated book about Nanny, but she's referenced yeah, in a yeah, couple yeah. of books. You know, so there was a sort of a suggestion and, and everyone sort of said to her, oh, you know, don't be ridiculous. Um, it's your own mother. It's the mm-hmm. grandmother of the child in question. She wouldn't hurt it. And she was just holding a pin standing near the baby when the baby died. But as with many things Ooh. in this story, with the benefit of hindsight, that becomes much more upsetting, I suppose would be the word. Right. Yeah, that might have been something the daughter said years later. I yeah. I don't remember that detail coming out during the investigation, but I can imagine the the daughter was furious at her mom. She had a step-grandson who I think she killed. Um, So one of her husbands had already had a grandchild. So she married into that. And then this husband, before he died, took his friend on a walk past the graveyard where the little boy was buried and pointed at the gravestone and said, I'll be next. So the husband seemed to... Yeah, isn't that terrifying? <laughs> what do you do if you're that friend? They're like, oh no, you're. Yeah, you're I mean, be it, fine. it raises. Yeah, w- w- quite one does. But so essentially, she's establishing a pattern after a certain point in time where she sort of mm-hmm. she gets married and, in many cases, has children, but sort of decides that the marriage isn't really for her. And in uh, mm-hmm. is it four of the husbands die? Is that right? Yes, her her next four husbands on a row die and. She has a reason for it all, you know, a nanny reason. So sure. her first husband is an alcoholic, she says. Her second husband's a womanizer. Her third husband's a womanizer. And her fourth husband is boring. Right. So in her mind, she has reasons for killing these men because they weren't perfect. Um, later, people who knew the husbands would 
come forward and contradict some of her claims. Like she said, her her second husband was very alcoholic and abusive, which of course we hear that we sympathize, but then people would come up later and be like, no, that's not true. Right. Nanny's making that up. So okay. uh, it's, hard to know exactly who was right. It's not clear cut. Yeah. So and, but it's, so in total, it's quite difficult then, would you say, for us to accurately estimate the number of victims involved here? Yeah. Well, the weird thing about Nanny is she very easily confessed to killing her husband. Like she was arrested when her last husband died. So she poisoned him. He went to the hospital. He didn't die. Hospital sent him home. She poisoned him again. He did die. So the coroner was like, whoa, I'm not going to sign the death certificate or whatever until we do a medical examination into him. They find arsenic in his body. She's arrested. And she'd also, she'd taken out life insurance policies on him, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. But she didn't, she wasn't one of those killers who really benefited from each. Okay. Like, she didn't get a lot of money from these. Right. Um, You know, some women do it, so there's two policies and, you know, they're getting thousands for each husband. but. I think it's safe to say that money was not her motivation. But she she easily confesses to the police. They kind of keep her over the weekend, and she's like, okay, you got me, boys. I've had five husbands, and I've killed four of them. But from that point on, she refuses to confess to any other murders, even when her mother's body, you know, her mother has passed away by this point. Nanny, quote-unquote, nursed her. Her mother's body is exhumed and it's full of arsenic. So, you know, there's yeah. there's a lot of evidence and or suspicions and rumors that she killed other people. Um, but she will never confess to any of that, which I think is telling because, you know, she's crafting this narrative of herself as this silly lady who couldn't find the right husband. And isn't that kind of relatable, ladies? You know, she had five duds. What would you do in her shoes? Of course you'd want a new model. Yeah, she's playing to kind of gender roles there, um, which I think is, mm-hmm. is an angle that we that is important for us to get into. At her trial, where she's convicted, they don't seek the death penalty because she's a woman. And mm-hmm. indeed, it's, there's an argument to be made that part of the reason why she, and I'd imagine you can tell me other female serial killers are able to kind of persist for such a long time, is that the general popular perception is that it's not a female activity. Yeah, absolutely. You're completely right. They They tend to go uncaught for much longer than men. Both male and female serial killers do plenty of damage. But, yeah, no one suspects the woman. And especially in Nanny's case, she wasn't some, you know, femme fatale of flashing dark eyes or whatever. She looked like a grandma. She was this cute, plump, grandmotherly little nugget. You know, she looked exactly like an American grandma from the 1950s. Yeah. Down to her pearls and her glasses. Yeah, sure. She's known as the giggling granny in the press when that's all going on, and the lonely hearts killer as well. Yeah, I think she was very clever. She instinctively understood the press and understood gender roles. And I think the reason she didn't confess to killing her mom is because that's not acceptable in the way. I'm not saying killing a husband is acceptable, but, you know, sure. when she marketed it as I killed four abusive slash womanizing slash dud husbands, they could frame that in a way that was a little more palatable than 
I killed my mother and I killed children, you know? She knew that. Yeah, yeah. So she's she's definitely working it. And I mean, so now we go back to what I mentioned earlier, which is that one of the, her other nicknames was the Lonely Hearts Killer. And she certainly met some of her husbands through Lonely Hearts columns. And, and from what I've read, she used to kind of read them pretty obsessively. And she was into these romance novels as well. But I, from what you were saying, I, I think your suggestion was that this was perhaps at least to a degree part of her presentation of herself rather than the actual reality. Yes, she definitely met her fourth husband, yeah, her fourth husband, Richard Morton, through a Lonely Hearts column. And we have a little relic of a heartbreaking letter that he sent the Lonely Hearts people asking him to take his name off the list because he'd found this wonderful woman, Nanny Doss, and they were going to get married. You know, fast forward a couple months, he's dead. Um, But I have noticed that some of the stuff written about Nanny in the years after her crimes, the romance novels get emphasized more and more. And I sort of think that was a bit of Nanny, clever Nanny PR, you know. I'm sure she did read them, um, and I think she did have this twisted yearning for a Prince Charming. But I had some skepticism because, again, it's like we're pretty sure she killed her mom. We're pretty sure she killed that step-grandchild. Romance novels and Lonely Hearts columns don't explain those crimes away. Sure. So there's a reason she didn't talk about them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and I mean, one of the things I picked up on in writing the song was that I read somewhere that as she was led off to prison after being convicted, she said to her daughter, who presumably Melvina, she said, my conscience is clear. You know, she, she presented herself as being at peace with her actions in a way that's really kind of disturbing. Yeah, she was an oddly happy prisoner. She kind of always made the best of her situations after she was caught. It makes sense to me that she would say that to her daughter. At first, she was sent to an asylum to be examined by doctors so they could declare her a sane or not. And they found her sane, and they actually loved her there. She had her 50th birthday party there. Um, And so she loved the asylum. And then she was okay with prison. I mean, she got a little bored. At one point, she faked a heart attack. Um, You know, I don't think life in prison is enjoyable for anyone, but she made friends and she hung out with the prison matron who was kind of a creepily enough, a maternal figure to her. She confessed to the husbands and she became a celebrity. And I mean, an actual celebrity. She was the by the time she got arrested, she was living in Oklahoma and she was the biggest news story in the state that year. So it's like she kind of got what she wanted. If romance is attention in a way, what she ultimately wanted is like this. Attention, she got it. Looking at her story kind of broadly, one of the things that drew me to write about it was the fact that as a society, we don't talk about female serial killers very often. And indeed, this sort of weaving of romance and, and romantic intention, and indeed then her claiming that her conscience was clear. She's written this almost almost romantic and possibly sort of slightly Hollywood story about herself, which, as we've mm-hmm. referred to, isn't really the full tale because there's darker um, not not that it's not dark to kill anyone but there's sort of darker mm-hmm. more um, taboo parts of her story when it comes to children mm-hmm. and that kind of thing um, I think that with any serial killer when you're talking about them there's that moment where you start discussing uh, I don't want to at any point paint her as a victim but you know you start discussing childhood trauma or physical injury sure. and, and abuse that she may or may not have suffered at the hands of her father or or her husband's, which may or may not be true. Um, as I say, you know, we have to be careful about that because I don't want—I uh, uh, don't want to be sort of trying to excuse her actions or 
paint her as anything other than the perpetrator of horrible crimes. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. I think the the thing that makes me not feel terribly sorry for her is there are plenty of cases where a woman kills one abusive husband and, you know, at least here, we even have legal precedents for that sort of thing. We all kind of understand that sometimes there are these cases and uh, it's just not the same as murdering someone in cold blood. And Nanny, I think, wanted us to see her that way. But the, the women who do that don't serially kill other husbands. You know, those yeah. are almost always a one-off thing. So that's where I get suspicious of Yeah, you, you mentioned the serial killer, the American one, who, who Charlize Theron played in Monster. Yeah, Eileen Warner. Yeah, that's a really interesting bit of history, talking about female serial killers, because Charlize Theron's portrayal of her and indeed the documentary about her, I don't want to go necessarily so far as to call it sympathetic, but it certainly kind of tries to mm-hmm. look at both sides of the story and what it is that might have driven this person to commit these crimes. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a good thing to look at both sides, but it's also tempting in a way because for serial killers, we always want to explain them, you know, because they're so horrible. And sometimes there's just not really an explanation. You know, you can try to piece together, okay, head injury plus overbearing father. But what I always go back to is how many women have had all those hardships. And don't turn into serial killers. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a recipe. There's no mathematical formula. And I mean, how many women are in abusive relationships and aren't serial killers? It's almost offensive to... (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, yes, completely. And I think that one of the things, you know, part of the reason that we're fascinated by serial killers as a culture generally, in my opinion, and please do expand on this, is perhaps Mm -hmm. that search for explanation that's certainly not simple and not necessarily there at all. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's something senseless or at least they exist outside of empathy as a concept, you know, which is a, mm-hmm. one of the cruxes of being a human being. For Nanny Doss to kill the people, you know, to kill her family is is a is a deeply disturbing thing for any normal human being. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're totally right. That's why we're fascinated. It's so hard for us to imagine, thank God, <laughs> yeah. for most of us. Um, and... Yeah, they really are sort of these puzzles. I mean, and now, like, it's the same with, you know, mass shooters, too, horribly. It's like, we want to think that if we could just figure out what makes them tick and X plus Y plus Z equals crimes, then we could sort of have this safer world. Um, and But then there's also for serial killers, like, there's the question of, are they just evil? Like, can you be born bad? Yeah. So I don't have the answer. Sadly. Yeah, yeah, of course. No one, no, no one does. No, no one does. Um, yeah, but I, exactly. Yeah, but I think that is why we can sort of endlessly pour over these stories because it's it's just tempting to try to find the answer. Sure. Well, I think so. One of the things I wanted to kind of bring up and discuss was that so the album that contains the song No Man's Land is at the time of recording this already out. And um, without this piece of explanation, there are some people who've already questioned my motives in writing a song, uh, not only writing a song about a female serial killer, but but writing from her point of view. And of course, I like to think I'm a considerate person. and I thought about this whilst writing and Mm -hmm. before releasing the song. And there is a level on which, um, you know, this is designed to be a piece of art that makes you uncomfortable in the same way as something mm-hmm. like, I mean, most obviously Nick Cave's murder ballads, but there was a, a famous exhibition in London in the 90s called Sensation. Somebody made a portrait of Myra Hindley from Child's Handprints. And, you know, oh. the, the, and the purpose of this art is to is obviously to make you think in various ways, but it's certainly not supposed to make you feel nice or make you feel comfortable. In this song, I'm not 
trying to celebrate Nanny Doss. That's not my intention in any way. Whether or not we're going to accept she's an evil person, she's certainly somebody who did evil things. I was wondering if you sort of had, had any thoughts on that and about the problems or potential problems with our societal kind of obsession, you might say, with serial killers. I mean, certainly, you know, on Netflix and that kind of thing, you can get lost mm. in serial killers for a long time. Yes, I think uh, it's so complicated. I think it's a fine line. I I'm very much of the camp of, you know, to explore women's history fully, you have to include the bad girls, too, which is why, you know, I, I, I'm i glad you included Nanny on your album, and I totally understand your impetus, yeah. like... Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely, that's exactly how I thought about it. If you were going to be have a holistic vision of this kind of thing, then they, there are bad people out there who were women in the past. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it doesn't help women to pretend like all women are perfect. I mean, that's then we're just going back to the Victorian idea of women are angels, and that wasn't particularly progressive or helpful. Sure. So, so on the one hand, it's like, yes, I think just important to understand that there's this range of behaviors uh humans come in all sorts of shades of good and bad and let's not be naive and pretend that they don't then of course you know i think anyone in the true crime world there are parts of it that are icky there are parts of it that feel too extreme yeah i personally am so sick of all the ted bundy content yeah flooding our airwaves. I mean, I think that there are some specific criminals, Bundy, Manson, maybe Jack the Ripper accounts yeah. too, where it's like, okay, come on. It, it, we are actually turning these people into celebrities and heroes, sure. and this is too much. We're not at risk of that for Nanny Doss. <laughs> no, no, totally. Well, I, I, you know, I think one of the other things that's interesting about uh, female serial killing generally, when you if you talk about like Manson or Dharma or John Wayne Gacy or people like this, is that there's something, I'm about to use a word that I'm a bit nervous to use here. They're, they're certainly less dramatic in their killing, generally mm-hmm. speaking, less kind of gory. One might almost say, and this is the nervous word for me, that there's something slightly feminine about their methodology. I, that might be the totally the wrong thing to say. In the women's methodology? Yeah, in the in the women's methodology, you know, in the sense that you know, there's a lot yeah. more. It's a lot more about kind of like poisoning um, and that kind of yeah. thing than it is about uh, explosive violence gory, and gore of, of some of the other things. Yeah. yeah, no, you're you're right. You're right. I understand why you're nervous to say it, but I think that is a huge part of the reason. I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer had heads in his freezer and a yeah. skeleton in his shower. Of course, that's going to catch our attention. I mean, that's it's so extreme. Whereas, you know, Nanny Doss put poison in black coffee and prunes, yeah. it's maybe not as Hollywood worthy. That makes it more insidious in a funny way. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, I mean, yes. the reason we all know Jeffrey Darwin's name is because really not many people ever do that, thankfully. Do you know what I mean? Right. So it's thankfully. it's kind of, it's um, noticeable by virtue of its rareness almost, you know, mm-hmm. whereas I'm not saying that Nanny Doss is a more regular occurrence necessarily, but it's kind of scarier in its way because it's so uh, imaginable or more imaginable in terms of its methodology mm-hmm. than, uh, some of, than someone like Ted Bundy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And yet people do seem to be more scared of the Ted Bundy stranger danger figure. But I agree. I mean, isn't it not more terrifying to think, you know, Nanny was some was a mom. She was in the home. Isn't it scarier yeah. to think of your mom turning on you? But I think there is maybe more of a primal fear of the stranger in us, which is why sure. 
these male killers who become so famous. Also, I'm sure some good old-fashioned sexism and weird things about people thinking that they are hot. Well, yeah, that's a whole other can of worms right there. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing because, like, in terms of kind of broader societal kind of rebalancing, fighting sexism, however you want to put it, I made to think of things like, you know, um, female superheroes and this kind of thing and female leads in action films who are fulfilling that kind of traditionally kind of violent role that men fulfill and not that it's necessarily for me to say or, or indeed that my opinion matters in this at all but like I slightly have mixed feelings about it like if we've got a culture that's full of violent films about men kicking the crap out of people how much progress mm-hmm. is it to then have balanced that by having a bunch of films about women kicking the crap out of people perhaps mm-hmm. we should have less crap kicking going on <laughs> yeah yeah I hear you and some of these action films too it's like well, we've been talking about how male and female serial killers are very different. So sometimes when I see one of these films where it's just like everything's the same except the lead happens to be a woman, I'm like, well, what does that teach us? I mean, like I just saw a preview for some film. It was the new Charlie's Angels. They all have these huge guns and they're doing like flipping out of burning cars. And it's like, okay, I guess I'm supposed to feel empowered because it's a female actress. But like... Let's lose the guns and the burning cars. Right, yeah, totally. It's an interesting question. And I mean, so, you know, it's like, on the one hand, by studying and talking about, as we are today, the fact that there are also female serial killers alongside the more famous men, I mean, there's a historical justification for doing that in terms of telling the truth and rebalancing the record and all that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, you know, life would be better with less serial killers, full stop. That's a (laughs) terribly trite thing to say, but it's true. (laughs) No, it's very true. And I don't think either of us wants a world where we just swap out the Ted Bundy movies for the Nanny Doss movies, although I I could use a Nanny Doss movie. I just don't need 10. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, completely. (laughs) To be perfectly honest, Kathy Bates playing Nanny Doss, I will go see it. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, there you go. Um, Well, I mean, mean, actually, that's funny you should mention that. I hadn't thought about Stephen King's um, Misery is kind of a rare example uh, of a, a, and it's a great mm -hmm. film. And it's fictional, obviously, but it's uh, more... (laughs) scary in its way because it's a, there's a there's a female and indeed quite surface level maternal protagonist yeah you're right that is to me one of the scariest ones i've ever seen yeah it's, it's, so i guess that does prove women can be scary too yay <laughs> well on that note we have struck a blow against sexism everywhere by proving that women can terrify us just as men can uh, so i'd like to thank you i feel like we've covered the ground with nanny today thank you so much for your time today oh you're very welcome it's a difficult topic to discuss in many ways but i feel hopefully not only in this podcast episode but in the song there's been at least an appropriate degree of sensitivity involved oh yes i love the song i think oh, you did thank a great you so job much. and I, I think it's important to you know at least know that these stories are out there not ignore them I married Charlie when I was 16 But I didn't love him and he didn't love me Frank was sweet, sent me poetry But it wasn't the same as it was on TV A lonely widow with no place to go For a time I settled on the Florida coast But Rick and Ollie, they had to go To join the rest of my family's ghosts Oh, oh, oh I haven't been a perfect wife 
I'm a lonely heart looking for the real romance in my life. Sam was a hard man with a real mean streak. Said women don't need romance magazines, but I showed him with his last coffee, and now they can do anything they like with me. Oh, oh, oh! I haven't been a perfect wife. I'm a lonely heart looking for the real romance in my life. Take it easy, don't worry. I'll be fine in here. I'm sure I'll find my perfect mate. Yet my conscience is clear. Didn't do it for the money. Truth, I was bored. Nobody writes to me anymore. Cigarettes. And prison walls can keep me company till I meet the Lord, and Lord knows that. Oh, oh, oh! I haven't been a perfect wife. I'm a lonely heart looking for the real romance in my life. Oh, oh, oh! I haven't been a perfect wife. I'm a lonely heart looking for the real romance in my life. Take it easy, don't worry. My conscience is clear. Thank you so much to Tori for that conversation. If you enjoyed it and are interested in more of the female serial killers that she knows and has written about, her book is called Lady Killers and is out now. It's a difficult thing to discuss, it has to be said, and I hope that we did it with as much respect for not only the sociology and historiography around the character, but of course for the victims as well. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe and review in the place you do that, and you can help us spread the word by doing those things. Uh, you can find the song A Perfect Wife on my latest album, No Man's Land, which is out now. You can buy or stream it wherever it is you get to your music. The next and final episode of the podcast is, drumroll please, an interview between me and my mum, whose name is Rosemary Jane. This episode of Tales from No Man's Land was produced by Hayley Clark. The executive producer was Peggy Sutton. Additional production work was done by Paul Smith, Steve Ackerman, Gully Lawrence Tickle, Josh Gibbs and Charlie Kaplow. Tales from No Man's Land is produced by me, Frank Turner, Extra Recordings and something else.